Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Episode 21 of Hashing It Out. I'm Dr. Corey Petty, as always, with Colin. Say hello, Colin. Hello, Colin. And today, we're here with Bernard Mueller with Mithril. Uh, Bernard, why don't you give us a quick introduction as to um, who you are, how you got in the space, and what Mithril is. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, my name is Bernhard. I'm a software and security engineer at Consensus Diligence, uh, which I joined earlier this year. But my background is actually in uh, software security. So most of my most of my life, I worked on breaking stuff like web applications, mobile apps, and uh, like everything else that you could think of. And I got interested in Ethereum about a year ago, and I was out of a job for a while. So I started writing Mystery basically as a hobby project. Uh, yeah, Mithril is an open source security analyzer for Ethereum bytecode. And originally it was actually meant as an attack tool. So, uh, its, it's uh, initial purpose was just to analyze contracts on chain and detect anything that's off base. So it was only compatible with bytecode, but then people actually started using it and there started to be more requests for also processing solidity. So I added that as well. And then I think it became quite popular. So uh, developers use it in their build process and so on. Even though it's, it's still more of an experimental tool in my opinion, but the results it generates are, are not bad and also quite useful, I think. Yeah, well, most things in this space are still experimental. Technically, I think Ethereum is yeah. is experimental chain. It's not supposed to be used as a uh, as a thing that's driving actual you know company platform. Uh, you know, according to yeah. the founders. But you know, that said, I mean, the experiments are really helping companies actually do stuff with this. So uh, thank you for your your work, even though you built it Thanks. with malicious intent. Um, <laughs> I'd be, I'd be curious to know, um, coming from a traditional security background, especially from an offensive standpoint, um, how have you viewed the Ethereum ecosystem and the, I guess, what security is in a completely decentralized, like kind of permissionless manner? Like, I, I also work um, security for for Status, and um, I'm trying to kind of wrap my mind around how the ideas or, or attack surface of what I would typically go after or things that would typically be the main target of an attacker change as you move into a decentralized company, decentralized platform and the things that are built on yeah. top of it. Yeah. I think it's very challenging for developers that come from a traditional background to, to understand what happens 
if you run code in the context of a decentralized system, right? So basically, you are you are you are doing state changes to a to a world computer to a world state that's shared between anyone, and the stuff that you deploy on the blockchain is supposed to be immutable, right? So uh, if you fuck it up, then you can't change it mm -hmm. by default at least. And if the code works in a way that you didn't expect, then there's also no way for you to revert that. Except yeah, you can ask the community to do a hard fork and restore all your funds. But at this point, it's probably not going to happen. And so you, you cannot roll back uh, bad actions, unintended actions. So that's very challenging. But also just to consider um, the way that the code runs and the way that transactions are processed, like, for example, uh, the way that blocks are created, you can't really predict the order of transactions. The people will see transactions in the mempool because they get added to the change. Uh, to the chain, so you have things like front running, and that's not very intuitive unless you really understand how the system works, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I can see that if you come from a JavaScript background and and you you did web applications before, and then you see also oh, Solidity is like JavaScript, awesome. Uh, I can use that, but you don't really understand um, the implications of what you're doing, then it's very easy to make mistakes. We've talked about that previously on the show and, and, and just generally on our Slack channel and other shows is, is the idea of the intuitions involved with um, creating web apps and how you program and what you're cavalier about when doing that programming doesn't, doesn't transition well when starting to build at least the smart contract aspect part of a, of a decentralized application. Like yeah. you can't be so cavalier. You have to be much more, um, I guess, scientific computing minded or high performance computing minded and that it should work exactly how it's supposed to without fail the moment you deploy yeah. it. And that, that type of thing is, I think now starting to become like, it's, it's more in the mindset of developers now because we've had public, public problems like the DAO and, and the parody hack and things like that. So people are starting to become more aware of these types of things. But like you said earlier, from a initial standpoint of a web developer jumping in because they're familiar with JavaScript, they port over all those bad habits of web app, web application development. Yeah. yeah it's a completely different context. Have you audited any smart contracts yourself before? Uh, uh, nothing, so, nothing like official. I've used some of the tooling to kind of play around with and look at how things work. And I've definitely looked into how like all the different vulnerabilities that are associated with smart contracts and, the yeah. compilers and the bytecode and things like that, but I haven't done audits for other people. I, I'm more interested yeah, in the in the security of everything else. So, like, yeah. the blockchain is you know quote unquote secure. Once it's in there, it works as intended. Um, yeah. Getting that information to the user is a, a litany of other problems that I don't think people are really looking at. Yeah, that's really interesting. But. So in my opinion, smart contract audits are very, very difficult to do because you have to be very, you have to be extremely precise and you cannot allow yourself to make any mistakes, right? Because you if, to, if you audit like an enterprise web application, you always have this disclaimer that nobody can find anything and we have this limited time. And then if you overlook something, okay, then, then you didn't find it. But in a smart contract, 
the smart contract itself is not that complex, but especially if you have multiple contracts or, or something that's a little bit more fancy and can be very, very difficult to, to really grasp all of it and consider all the things that can go wrong. And yeah, like I, if you look at something like the Dharma protocol, like that's a really complex set of smart contracts. I mean, they're very like intertwined and and, and timing based, and and they deal with settlement and lending and uh, you know interest calculation and stuff like that. All of those things have possible attack vectors, especially in, with transaction ordering, like you like you mentioned yeah. earlier. It's not just about the bytecode; it's about the entire system. So yeah. what kind of things have you noticed as you've been doing this that uh, most developers aren't uh, cognizant of that you'd like to kind of shout out to and basically say, hey, you're developing a large smart contract platform. You need to look at these things. Well, well, there is kind of a top 10 list, right? It's like re-entrancy and unprotected functions and stuff like that. So I, I don't have any... Anything in particular, I think just in general, we need a clear classification, classification of what those things are and, and practical guidelines that programmers can follow. So since you've dealt with the bytecode side of things, have you noticed any attacks that only appear in the bytecode but may not be particularly noticeable from the code standpoint? So particular ways that people use traditional coding models might actually enable a bytecode attack, whereas you know, uh, you wouldn't notice it in the actual code itself very well. Yeah, there's one very interesting thing that I wrote about in my last paper. I don't know if you read it. It's called uh, Smashing Smart Contracts for Fun and Real Profits. I have not, and I'm going to link it in the show notes for others who are interested. And there's one very nice feature of dynamically sized arrays. So... Uh, you know how dynamically sized arrays works in Solidity? So basically, you have, you have an array, but you don't know how many elements it's going to have, and it has a, a length variable. And if you manage to underflow that length variable, you can basically uh, and address any element in that array and override arbitrary storage locations. So you can, for example, override storage slot zero, which has the owner stored. And that's that's something you, it's very, very hard to see from the source code alone because you need to know how um, Solidity computes the offsets that it uses when you reference an element in the array. So if you know that, then you can calculate the exact number that you have to put there to, to reach that location that you want. But if you as a programmer don't really have know the specifics and all, almost nobody does, then... I don't think you would realize that this is exploitable. Yeah, there's. I actually think there's kernel protections for those kind of things in a lot of uh, modern operating systems for certain types mm -hmm. of the compilers bake that in. I should say. Yeah. But the yeah. EVM is so light that it really doesn't have these kind of protections baked in, and the hooks in order to 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 facilitate those those kind of. Uh, protections like that should be a standard kind of like thing you know oh you can't underflow an array because it can't go outside the index bounds well yeah. you know that's not something that the solidity compiler will be able to do. i mean they would have to write actual solidity code to protect that whereas 
you know, in an operating system, you could just do a call that says, hey, this is bounded by this amount. You shouldn't allow it to go outside this memory space. Um, that's big. That's a that's a major problem I was not aware of. And um, I did glance over your paper, but, it, you know, um, it's it's not uh, it's it's not something that uh, I think anybody would even think to notice if they come from a traditional space. It just wouldn't. No, no. They're too dependent on the robust environment that they typically work in. And so, and, and it, yeah. yeah. Especially JavaScript abstracts everything away. You know, you don't need to uh, to worry about... Uh, Memory allocation, garbage collection. Yeah. Yeah, and, and how much, how many bits of... Uh, uh, what's the largest value that an integer variable can hold, for yeah. example? Because JavaScript controls for that, right? But in Solidity, doesn't. That's what and I mean. To be honest, that, that initial that initial intuition. There are things you expect to happen when you come from a a higher level like script script like language doesn't yeah. work well for the things you need to care about when writing smart contracts. I mean, I, I guess that the uh, Viper, the Python version, or the Python like version of uh, of making smart contracts helps with that. But still, Python is not much better. Uh, yeah. I, I came from a Fortran background, so like you really have to care about all of those things in order to, for your program to work. And there are other low-level languages that are similar. And I think that type of intuition helps people make better smart contracts from the start. So, and also tooling around those smart contracts to provide better um, checking to make sure that what's actually created from the source code is what you want it to do, and not necessarily like have these weird. These these weird quirks about the actual bytecode that's deployed to the contract to the to the blockchain. Yeah, yeah. So you've uh, <laughs> to facilitate the creation of better smart contracts. Mithril has grown from just a simple tool, Mithril OSS, to a suite of tools and now a platform API. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit, going one by one through what you guys kind of built, like Harvey, Maru, Mithril plus plus, to tell us you know where <laughs> you're going with this, like. Like obviously this is a good first step, but like we've got a long way to go, and there's a lot of different tools that people need in order to 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 securely build and deploy smart contracts. So what are you doing to fix the problem? Well, we try to get tools into the hand of developers that developers can actually use, and should be point and shoot tools that give good results and good coverage within a short amount of time, because nobody is going to wait like three or four days for the results of an analysis. And it should work out of the box and it should fit into the familiar environment that developers are working with, like build pipelines, IDEs, and so on. So the idea is to have one API that hopefully offers the best security analysis available. And in the first version of that API, you will uh, submit Solidity source code and bytecode for the same contract. And you basically have this suite of tools that all run, and the results of the tools get correlated and inform each other to improve, to get, to get so that the greater becomes more than the sum of its parts, like to say. Right? So, for example, you could say you do a first pass of static analysis and then you feed the input into the symbolic analyzer, and the symbolic analyzer knows what parts, uh, parts are important to cover, so you can speed up the analysis. And the result of that generates test cases for the fuzzer, 
and the fuzzer then uh, verifies that the bugs are actually exploitable. So that's the basic idea. And it will not be all that awesome in version one of the API, but we're going to expand on that gradually. I, so uh, I guess tooling, tooling like this, especially, um, maybe has different audiences and um, who, who, who your demographic is. One could be the yeah. general developer who this gets built into their, their pipeline, like you just mentioned. The other is like for the specialists, um, the, exactly. the auditors yeah. who, are, who are doing, like, who are getting paid to make sure that they go over with a fine tooth comb any potential vulnerabilities or problems with smart contracts from other people. Um, is there a differentiation yeah. in the in the product between these two audiences, or do you see it more along the lines of just becoming more like you know automatic linting, error checking, things like that, so that when someone tries to make a smart contract, they say, "Oh, this is a problem, fix it before you send it off to an actual auditor." Yeah, exactly. That's what we're targeting. So we're targeting developers and early stages of development. So the earlier the possible. Uh, that's, um, that's a good. It's a good place to be. <laughs> to facilitate IDE integration too, right? Yes, yes, exactly. So we have uh, Visual Studio Code plugin, for example, an experimental one, and we have a few people working on really cool ideas. Like, for example, one guy came up with uh, with a Solidity watcher that pops up a desktop not notification if there's any vulnerability, and I think there's unlimited things that you can do. Uh, other ideas would be just lightweight tools like that you install from npm. Uh, Truffle integration is very important. So we are now in this phase mostly looking for partners that want to integrate Mithril in some way. I can probably and facilitate some of that, cool. <laughs> considering status uh, creates Embark, which okay. is one of the larger the larger IDEs in the space. So okay. let's go one through awesome. one by one through some of the tools that you're you're developing at Mithril. Um, talk to us a little bit about Maru. Uh, my specialty is Mithril, to be honest. Oh, okay. Okay. Three, three different teams working on each. Okay. So Har Harvey is actually a tool that already exists. So uh -huh. um, it was built by a guy called Valentin, and. Uh, I think he did it for his PhD thesis and was playing with his own startup, but ultimately he decided to sell the tool to us and join our team, which was very cool. So that's already done. And can't tell you too many details about the internals, but basically it's something that can accept test cases from Mithril and run them on chain and then do mutation-based fuzzing and interpret the results. So I guess in the beginning, this will be at the end of the pipeline. And Maru is built by another colleague, Gerhard Wagner. And that's a static source code analyzer, now in the first iteration, and later also bytecode analyzer. And this will also call all the low-hanging fruit, like, you know, like style and that you should lock your compiler version and all that stuff. It's also important to know uh, yeah. Yeah, we interviewed um, QuantSnap last, and Colin asked the question about whether or not, um, like, if their bytecode analysis could look to see what 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 compiler was used 
along with the source code to see if there's any weird weird issues along alongside of that or like backwards compatibility issues or like oh if you changed your compiler it would fix this particular issue of compiling from source code to bytecode and things like that do, yeah. do you do you look for any stuff like that i think in that case you just more or less generically say to use the latest compiler version at least if you have the source code mm-hmm. but if you've only the bytecodes I guess it's not too easy to tell what compiler was used. I mean, you could detect it with some pattern recognition or something, I guess. But in that case, I think it's not too important which compiler was used because if there are bugs in there, you will detect them anyway, right? But it would be the more uh, part of the recommendations to say, okay, we found this bug. And it was probably because you used compiler X, so you can fix it by using a new compiler. That's how I imagined it. So it sounds to me then that the logical step in the next logical step in this process is to control the compiler, meaning that um, you know you have the code linter, um, static analyzer, input fuzzing, all. all but like at the end of the day, like if the Solidity compiler has a problem, you know, it, it's 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 the problem with the compiler. We don't need necessarily to use the default Solidity compiler to make contracts. Um, yeah. It's just you know, it's it's a uh, it's you know, Lex and Yak basically. You know, it it builds bytecode, um, and and the protections we spoke about earlier in the podcast could be baked in to some of these contracts, you know, yes, it would increase the cost of launching the contract, but you would have some security baked into the contract itself on the bytecode level. Those kind of protections don't exist in the current Solidity compiler. uh, What kind of efforts would, would you consider efforts um, for Mithril to contribute those kind of things to the Solidity compiler or create your own either Solidity compiler or language um, yeah. kind of take the Viper route where you have protections baked into the language itself mm-hmm. for actually producing these smart contracts so that you can actually provide to users of your tool set a more uh, robust, secure environment for their bytecode to exist in. Yeah, I think it's a very cool idea. I don't know of anybody working on a more secure Solidity compiler, but we have uh, one person on the team, Mario, who is working on a compiler called L. Which is which comes with its own uh, its own language, and the compiler is formally verified, and the language is also formally verifiable. Is that the, but, uh, the functional programming language? Yes, yes, exactly. It's got some and, cool syntax. Yeah, it's really really cool, and the only question is how you get people to actually adopt it. I guess because the reason why everybody develops on Ethereum is because it's easy. But if you have to deal with function languages and, and proofs and formal verification, it, it gets a bit less accessible, right? Well, hold on. So, We're just launching bytecode. It doesn't matter what language you use. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that a lot of initial developers don't initially. Now, for from a community standpoint, uh, Corey's making a face. <laughs> <laughs> from a community standpoint, yes, it has. There are... There are um, there are benefits to having something that the community can kind of understand and get behind. But, you know, uh, 
if solidity winds up being a problem, it's just a language. You know, Viper's just a language. L is just a language. And they all compile to bytecode, which runs on the virtual machine. Um, the, you know, solidity isn't Ethereum. And so, you know, to me, it just seems like um, if there are, you know, controlling the, the code environment itself and the compiler environment is advantageous to anybody who has a real um, panache for security in this particular you know, field. Um, it just seems like a logical extension of what you're doing. Like, next step, control the compiler. Yeah. Yeah, it's a cool idea, definitely. But I think it's, it's a whole different challenge than what we are doing currently. I hear you. I, hear I, have, you. A, I have a feeling like... Um, there's a there's the next trend in at least the Ethereum ecosystem or the majority of any any like successful smart contracting platforms is going to be um, security researchers. I mean, like it's, it's they're becoming very aware that um, blockchain doesn't give security or blockchain doesn't, doesn't let's see how do I say this? Uh, security doesn't need blockchain. Blockchain needs security in a lot of ways. And yeah. like what and what we call in the, in the previous years, what we said, like, you know, blockchain is more secure, blockchain is everything. And all these, these guarantees that we mentioned only really, really apply to a very small subset of what blockchain offers. And the rest of the ecosystem around it is just wrought with security vulnerabilities. And, and if we keep making it as inclusive and open source permissionless, as we say, lowering the barriers of entry to allow people to create smart contracts that are bad and put them on the network, it's just going to, make this massive open space of of issues that security researchers are going to need to tackle until we have better practices and protocols on how to do things or it becomes less like i don't know we we change the narrative so that that we like maybe everyone shouldn't be making smart contracts and people who are good at it should be making them as opposed to saying of course anybody can do it that's a good part having the option to be able to do it but not everyone should do it yeah but I think everybody who does smart contracts thinks that he's good at it. Yeah. Or at least most most people. <laughs> I suck at it. I mean, that's why I don't really do that. <laughs> I do it all the time. I, I know I'm bad at it. Like I know that there's things that I'm missing because there's so many details in what actually gets output by the compiler that I don't feel equipped to know all of those details. And anything yeah. that helps me know about them, you know, is is, is awesome. I appreciate your work. So what's so have you ever saved anybody's ass? And what's the biggest ass you've saved? <laughs> you mean you mean physically biggest ass or yeah, sure, <laughs> not sure about... yeah. like, who's the fattest person you've saved? Like, That's a uh, part of the the invoice. Oh, I mean, like what's what's the yes. biggest? Like you you don't have to name any names, but like just what's what's the biggest bug you caught that 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 just like oh god, if you didn't see this, you'd have been totally boned, and they probably wouldn't have caught it if it weren't for you. Whew. Okay, let me think. Well, well, uh, it's difficult to, to, to give it out because I'm not really sure about NDAs that we had in recent audits. I mean, there were some, some nice, there were some nice finds, definitely. Well, the cool thing is you don't have to say who, you don't have to say you know, but you, the NDAs, I mean, like, these are all open, you know, the, the code, the bytecode when it's produced is open and on the blockchain, right? So yeah. talk about the bug. 
where we had in a recent project actually a bug where you could inject arbitrary bytecode into the contract and execute it. Whoa, is that through like a, a, a poorly made delegate call? So basically, a, basically a command execution in the blockchain. I'm not sure if it was delegate call or I think it was kind of a scripting system that was implemented. And so you could inject these scripts and perform arbitrary actions in the context of the smart contract, something like that. Oof. Yeah. Oof. That was just pretty cool, yeah. So, Oof. yeah, things are getting more and more complex and people start doing things that, in my opinion, uh, smart contracts should not do. So I think the smart contracts should be really simple and should implement business rules that you can only that you want to have on the blockchain, but they shouldn't be like complex apps, right? All that logic should be in the uh, in the DAP. It should be easy to reason contract. about. Like the smart contract should be very easy to yeah. reason about what its function is supposed to be and and uh, <clears throat> what like very functional in that like if you give an input, it gives this output, and you understand why and what and like what scenarios around it, so that. When you are auditing, because at the end of the day, any, any type of audit has to be manual. You use tooling to facilitate manual auditing. Yeah. And if you can't reason about it, if it's too complex, then it just becomes a, a nightmare or, or impossible. Yeah. So there's only so many simple things in the world. I think uh, things get interesting when there's complexity. But as far as you know, simple things, that's a limited subset of possible stuff. And one of the things we've talked about is cryptoeconomic primitives. Um, do you feel like we have too many smart contracts out there? Do you feel like people are relying too heavily on um, smart contracts and auditing and security? And can we can we water this down to some basic core principles that we know are correct and we know how they interact together? Um, then then uh, then what we're currently doing, which is to build you know a smart contract platform for X, Y, and Z. You know, mm -hmm. do you feel like we have too many smart contracts? Or can we really just build some basic crypto economic primitives and build the world on that? True, oh, that's a very open-ended question. Uh, the best kind. I think what we're currently do doing is at least, it's maybe not that ambitious, but we're trying to create uh, standard benchmarks and standard, uh, standard sets of vulnerability classes for smart contracts. So we have a project called uh, uh, Ethereum Analyzer Benchmarks. And these benchmarks, we combine benchmarks from different authors. Like, for example, we have not so smart contracts from Trail of Bits. We have our own set that was developed by a researcher, and we're now adding more. And we're trying really to cover every possible type of vulnerability and to have uh, uh, micro tests, but also real world contracts that uh, implement these vulnerabilities. And then we also have an automated runner that runs security tools against these benchmarks and and assesses whether these vulnerabilities are detected or not. And so the first part of this uh, that we're working on now is kind of to have a classification of things that you should not do and a classification of vulnerabilities that exist that everybody agrees on. And based on that, we can do best practices and benchmarks and, and really create standards 
that people should follow. I'm hoping that's um, a good portion of that, or at least the, the, the a clear road of what that will look like will come from um, this upcoming uh, security conference we're going to in Berlin. And like, yeah. I, I don't know, like I, I, I've always said that an expert is someone who knows what not to do uh, because you could never know everything, like the right way to do everything. It's more along the lines of, you know, the really big mistakes of what not to do to avoid them. And yeah. through this process of what you're trying to do and what I think the entire, I guess, security community of Ethereum or blockchain is trying to do is create these protocols and standards and a kind of resource or repository of what not to do, making it easier to become an expert quicker. Yeah. Okay, so I guess uh, my next, uh, I noticed that you're building Mithril Plus Plus. What's so plus plus about it? <laughs> well, it's, it does more stuff and it has better vulnerability analysis models. So I actually wanted to talk about some of the improvements that we've making to the engine recently. So one of the things that came up uh, in the call with Quadstam last time, which I listened to before, was uh, whether intercontract interactions are supported. So like, for example, if you have something like the parity bug where there was a delegate call to the init wallet function that depends on multiple contracts, um, we can detect it. So Mithril has a built-in dynamic loader, it's called. And if you run it against any contract on the chain, it will automatically detect when other contracts are called and also download the dependencies and then also simulate the calls into that contract. And this was one of the first things we built in. And that's pretty cool, I think. And it works against uh, wallet library as well. Cool. So uh, you also mentioned some speed improvement. I'm kind of curious what you've done to make the process of auditing, I guess auditing might not be the right, analyzing smart contracts for security faster. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot lot of things uh, that you can do in that direction. So, so we did a lot, lot of refactoring of the core engines. We built in so-called search strategies that Mithril can use to determine what states are relevant and what not, and also pruning of states that are probably not interesting. So you just try to get the space of states to be inspected as small as possible and try to throw away stuff that doesn't have to be analyzed. That's one thing. Uh, can you, can you talk thing, about that a little more in detail on, on how that how that works? How you do these these like kind of these search states or well one one very simple thing you can do, for example, is this if you have a conditional jump and you discover that one of the conditions can never be fulfilled, then you just throw away uh, that path. But I, I guess you can build on that and do a lot more complex things. Um and that's where I have a master's student currently working on. So he's in charge of uh, refactoring the core analysis stuff. His name is Joran. And we'll have a couple of other people that are more academically inclined than me join the team as well uh, to work on that. Because I was kind of considering... A, go ahead. 
it's a very scientific aspect of it, right? So there's a lot of research and papers and uh, one of our, one of my colleagues, Suheib, he wrote a paper about state space reduction. So about exactly that problem. So we'll get his input as well. And yeah, so far we haven't had big problems with runtime because um, in the original version of Mithril, we were always analyzing runtime bytecode of a single contract and just running one transaction against it. And that usually finishes pretty fast. So either a few seconds up to a few minutes. So it re really hasn't been a pressing issue so far. But what we have now is called a multi-transactional analysis. And in this type of analysis, you actually simulate a, a subsequent transactions. So you look at one contract, you execute it symbolically, then you get all the possible uh, ending states or closing states, how we call them. And then from those states, you continue with a second transaction. And by doing that, because uh, every execution has multiple states, the state space grows exponentially. So the more you do, the larger it gets. And at the moment, we can only reasonably do two. So yeah, we're also thinking about solutions for that. And that's where you get into a situation where you need a lot of computing power. Yeah, I can see that, that the pruning becoming yeah. quite difficult. Like, like any type of uh, uh, algorithm that would that would prune away, uh, I guess, dead ends quickly to increase that search. It yeah, also has yeah, even with that, issues you, as well. Even with that, you you just have a certain limit that you can reach. Uh, we're talking a lot to Quantstamp at the moment, who are very good friends of us, and also investigating ways if it would be possible to to customize Mithril in a way that it's, that its analysis can be distributed to, to multiple validation nodes, which would be pretty cool because then, then we could combine the best of both worlds, so to say. It's almost like this, this, this uh, yeah. true bit of smart contract auditing. Sorry. The, yes. It's kind exactly. of like a, yeah, the true bit exactly. of smart contract auditing is you're using, you know, computational so resources. Then we could to say, okay, maybe, maybe through Quantstamp you can get, this uh, type of analysis that takes maybe multiple hours or days, but is very thorough and really goes down like 10 transactions and runs on a lot of uh, nodes, which you cannot do with the standalone Mithril or the API because it's just the computation power is limited. And this is yeah. kind of a, this is kind of like, like I come from a like, uh, scientific computing background and this is a very, yeah. this is very reminiscent of the way a lot of sciences have progressed as computational resources have gone um, and become much more available. Um, and so what happens is you've, you've had these relatively new branches of each science called like computational X. Like I, I worked in computational chemistry where a lot of the front-loading work gets pushed onto computationally modding these things virtually so that you try and catch a lot of issues before you actually do it in real life right and it's the same thing we're happening here where we're trying to then have like a, i guess a i don't know virtualization area of deploying these smart contracts and then yeah. trying to and trying to you know analyze what happens as you interact with them virtually more and more and more which is computationally heavy as you just as you just outlined and I think that's going to become possibly the future of how we 
do things that are, will hold any type of relevant value. Do you, is that the future that you see um, with regards to, like, I guess, smart contract security is, is having this very robust system that you can deploy a smart contract to. And it's saying, you know, based on a tremendous amount of computation, we can give you this percent guarantee that it's safe. Yeah, that's a possibility, I think. Definitely. So it sounds to me like you're fighting something compiler. Um, develop, people who develop compilers that have been fighting for since the invention of a compiler, the halting problem. Um, yeah. You know, you're fighting the halting problem. Um, for those who don't know, um, the halting problem is a problem in computer science where it is actually completely proven that in a Turing complete system, you cannot have 100% um, verified execution of code, meaning that you cannot write a program which checks to make sure your program does what um, what the program is intended to do. Um, to give a small example of why this is the case and, and what, what this, you know, if you were to write such a program that takes code in as input and, and tells you whether or not it works 100% on output, what happens if you take that same program and put it in itself into it? It would go into this infinite regress. And these kind of yeah. infinite regress situations occur all over computer science. It's not just that one case. It's a very common common case. Anything dealing yeah. with recursion, which fortunately smart contracts don't deal with very often, would have that like immensely. Uh, anything dealing with you know uh, unbounded loops would have that you know immensely. Unbounded loops are pretty common, although not as common in smart contracts. Yeah. Um, anything that calls another program that then calls another program would call, would have this kind of issue as well. Now you've got an interdependency. Yeah. You cannot formally verify other programs that well. So. Yeah. Um, so these, the halting problem is a fundamental, call it a problem, but it's just a fact. It's a, it's a, like, like Godel and completeness is a fact. Like you're going to encounter these kind of, you know, uh, things that just not every system can handle. And in a, form, yeah. in a, in a verification system in, uh, for uh, analyzing code, you will never get a complete answer for anything. And what you seem to be fighting is that, that, that exact halting problem. And ultimately the only solution that has any sort of like um, ability to solve that at the moment is the human mind, meaning that humans can spot problems that computers cannot. And that is why we don't get paid $15 an hour. Um, yeah. So this leads me to my next, my next uh, thing for you. I noticed in your recent Medium article where you're announcing the Mithril platform API, you spoke that you're working mm -hmm. with Gitcoin. Uh, we just had Kevin Owaki on the show. Um, I'm wondering what, how you see the kind of process pipeline working between, you know, uh, static analysis, you know, distributed analysis through things like Quantstamp, and then uh, further uh, bug hunts and bounties for auditing smart contracts and confidence levels being built as a result of that and reputation models being built around that. Do you see all these tools kind of chaining together and what kind of uh, partnerships are you working with to actually make that kind of process flow uh, smooth mm -hmm. um, in the system? And are you the point of entry? Mm -hmm. well, well, for, the, for the first point you brought up about the halting problem, I think we have a slight advantage there because, uh, because of gas. So Ethereum has a block gas limit. So you can 
guarantee that if the block gas limit, uh, if the gas used goes up to the block gas limits, then execution will always terminate. The that question is, is yep. the question is if you if how resource in intensive is it is to get up to that point, right? Uh, but I haven't made the calculations yet, so I hope that it's possible, maybe maybe even to have that as a, as a unique selling point of using distributed computation to do it and using a lot of computing power. And yeah, that definitely yeah, you're completely right. I actually forgot that that's the whole purpose of gas is to fight that, that exact problem. But the formal verification of these, like these models to know where the state is. So they exist. This is a state machine that exists over multiple transactions. So even though a single transaction can have, a, uh, a you know a halting problem. If you send multiple transactions, you don't know how the state machine itself will update and whether or not that will be correct. Does that make yeah. sense? That that's true. And we actually we, we are writing test cases for exactly this kind of situation. Like for example, let's say you have an integer variable and you have a function that increases this by increases that variable by one with each call. So basically, what you would have to do would be to send two to the power of 256 transactions, and then the integer would overflow, right? And this kind of thing, so this kind of thing is kind of related to the halting problem, right? Because you cannot sim simulate unlimited transactions. You can never be 100% sure that not eventually the integer overflow can happen. Yep, and so you go through all these end state conditions, and these end state conditions are basically yeah. predictions of this is how we're going, but these are over multiple yeah. transactions. So the gas only solves one type of issue, which is yeah. how much, you know, how much can a single transaction consume, but it, it, yeah. which stops the whole network if you don't, but it doesn't secure a small, smart contract itself because these, the halting problem exists in multiple, in, over the course of the lifetime of a contract. That's true, yeah. If you see it like that, that's true. You cannot have a hundred percent you cannot have a hundred percent proof. Well the good thing is that uh smart contracts uh, use loops. I mean sometimes they do, but not very often, which makes things a little bit easier for us. And I mean you could I guess come up with a, a subset of solidity that you could use. And if you adhere to certain rules, that would make the contract verifiable. And yeah, this is also something I've been thinking about a little bit, but not too much. But I think people are already working on that as well. So let's say you, you cannot call external contracts uh, to prevent recursion, and you cannot have unbounded loops, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and then the contract can be verified. But the contract itself is an unbounded loop. Well, I guess it depends what you are verifying as well. So maybe there are certain properties that you can verify and can prove that they are impossible to happen no matter how many yeah. iterations transactions yeah. are called. But that's and probably that's a, a subset of things there. Right. And that's where you were talking about the end states and how, how there could be transit, you know, you could go only go two layers deep 
and it becomes an exponentially difficult problem to go through all the possible states of a smart contract. Yeah. Yeah. A way to this kind of reword that. Like, a, a way to kind of reword that is that you have you have a, a limited amount of end execution states from a single transaction, but a much, much, much larger space of end states for the contract itself, which can yeah. be gotten to through multiple transactions. Searching yeah. that ladder space, that that like where the actual contract can go to through multiple transactions is a very difficult, exponentially growing transact uh, exponentially yeah. growing problem with the number of transactions done. Yep. And what he's trying to do is create a system that allows you to search that space efficiently. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's really interesting that still, no matter no matter how many tools we throw at this, because of the halting problem, we will never get 100%. And yep. so ultimately, building in a human audit model is actually essential for security of your smart contract. Definitely. You can only automate to a limit. And that automation takes care of, I'd say, a solid 90% of the possible things. That's me pulling the stat out my ass. But you know, a, a solid, a major, a super majority of of the the problems that um, that we can encounter with these smart contracts. But at the end of the day, you still need a human. But a human yep. doesn't want to go through the process of doing these automatable things in order to look exactly. for the problem. Assume that they're done already. So what I'm asking is, and I, I did a really long, roundabout way of getting to that point, <laughs> is we're building an ecosystem. It's not just about mithril. It's not just about distributed, you know, throw it over the wall, come back two days later with your answer, you know, systems like Quantstamp. It's not about, um, it's not, it's, it's not just about bug bounties because they don't want to look at all the details of every little thing. There's, there's, there's an ecosystem, a chain of, of security flow here that we're building um, in a very decentralized way. I mean, that mithril mm-hmm. takes care of their one, your static analyzers, your one, particular part where you get the low-hanging fruit right off the bat quickly, mm-hmm. you know what's what's normal, you know what's what's abnormal, you know what's going to be ca- causing a problem right off the bat, and you got Quantstamp doing the state analysis on the tail end, trying to produce prediction to find errors where there might be issues uh, down the road, and then you've got the, the creative side, and I call it creative because security is a very creative field. People don't think of it that way, but to think yeah. like a hacker, you have to think outside the box tremendously. And that's where the code auditors come in at the very tail end. And so we're building this literal flow of like Mithril to Quantstamp to 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 um to Gitcoin, and they and these these you know from static analyzer to state analysis to state prediction analysis to to um, human auditing, and each one is essential. And I just yeah. wanted to point out that everybody is part of this, and that yeah. everybody has a role here, and everybody has a niche, and that. The key that I'm looking for in this as a consumer of your products is, yeah. and I think you've touched on this already, is in because of your partnerships with Quantstamp and with Gitcoin, I think you're going in this direction as well. I was kind of hoping you could expound on this, is how do we yeah. facilitate that flow seamlessly to developers? Yeah, so it's, it's a... It's a uh... It's a proposed partnership with Quantstem, so I don't want to announce anything that's not not really yet signed or anything. <laughs> Sorry, just... I didn't mean to. Yeah, and security. Having... I just say the security community is is talks very regularly and and collaborates with each other like informally on a regular basis. Yeah. So I uh, just having said that, uh, I, I agree with a lot of what you said before including the exact numbers. So I think that's 90% of stuff should be called with, should be caught with automatic tools. And 
auditors should really only have to look at the rest of the 10% because nobody wants to report old compiler versions and, and bugs that you can you can easily catch with static analysis, right? It's just boring. So as an auditor, you want to look at the business logic and want to really understand the system and what it's meant to do and find the, the really complex and awesome bugs. And so I, I come from a penetration testing and audit background and have been mostly doing that my whole life. And in the last five years or so, I discovered that I really want to automate everything away that can be automated away. And yeah, that's the boring stuff, that. right? That's yeah. the stuff that's, that's, that, that you have to do every single time, and it's the same problem every single time. And there's, you know, it's like, oh, this guy has this issue again. Or let's just say, oh, look, they've got wget on this machine. That's not secure, blah, blah, blah. Like, there's a lot. Or, oh, you still have your C compiler on this on this machine. We need to remove that for this type of secure security yeah. certificate, you know? Well, I think that the important part here is that... Um, as this space grows, it's going to become intractable for the small, relatively small security community to to get a lot done. If we're spending all of our time looking at you know trivial trivial matters that can be automated away, like the the experts should be spending their time looking at that small ten percent or less of really 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 hard problems, and not all of their time looking at trivial. Uh, I, I mean, I don't want to say trivial, but things that can be automated away. That's the yeah. important part here. So I think the overall vision is that there are tools for everyone and developers have the right tools in the SDLC. They have the right best practices to follow and the right codes that's as secure as possible. So as what you see as an auditor in the end is already pretty solid. And then you audit and then you find the last few business logic flaws and uh, crypto economic flaws and whatever, and those got fixed. And then maybe it gets on the mainnet and it gets verified by validation nodes. And um, at Diligence, we're also working on a second product. It's called Panwala. I'm not sure if you already heard about that. Uh, it's a token curated registry for smart contracts. Uh, for smart contracts that are secure. So basically what you can do if you've done an audit for someone, you can, and you're very confident that the contract is secure, you can apply for that registry and the contract will be listed along with your audit material and report and everything you have done. And uh, other people can look at that and can challenge your submission. So basically there's a staking system and uh, if it's proven that there's a vulnerability in the contract that was overlooked, then you lose your stake. And uh, the idea is to create a whole ecosystem or a community of auditors that all keep an eye on the contracts that get deployed and that, that vote on whether these contracts should be considered secure or not. And once you are in this registry, you, you will have a uh, client-side plugins, for example, for MetaMask, that will just show the verified symbol with certain levels. So you will very easily see as an end user if the contract is considered secure by the community of auditors or not. That is awesome. That is something I actually did not hear about that until just now. So that is something that I think is super cool. Um, having that verified, you know, sort of uh, 
system as well, being kind of like the very sign of smart contracts is, is definitely. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's really, <laughs> I'm glad somebody's doing that. Um, and the other thing is that it doubles, it doubles, it doubles its use, use, use case in that if, uh, so they decided to publish their code or make a marketplace for the code um, so that, yeah, you can see the security audit, you can see what it's passed, you can see it, how long it's been on the, on the system. You can actually license, yeah. license the code to some degree if, if, if there's some sort of way that you can have somebody doing, uh, you know, the actual original source. So if somebody could do, you know, yeah. testing yeah. just the byte code, then you can gain access to the original source, um, yeah. you know, for a fee. Like, oh, yeah, we'll send this to you. You know, here's your license. Um, That's true. It also goes into more of a package manager-like system, where which is something I've been calling for a lot, and that we have a lot of these smart contracts doing the same thing, um, yeah. and they're just minor tweaks here and there, and building more. Um, I feel like we need less smart contracts, not more, um, and yeah. you know everybody just deploying the same smart contract over and over again is kind of problematic. Um, yeah. I would rather have people reference another smart contract, maybe add a little bit of tweak to it, and then that'll be their thing. Um, you know, so a more package manager like system for managing the code seems kind of essential to me. Yeah. So, and yeah. Uh, you know, this whole system lends to one other area of concern from a business standpoint that has been brought up uh, before in our episodes. I can't remember if it was with uh, Gitcoin or, or Quantstamp, but the idea of insuring smart contracts. Um, right now, anybody wants to, in the insurance space, you run your business on uh, Ethereum smart contracts. Um, you are um, essentially, uh, they have no way of doing some sort of like um, proper um, uh, risk analysis on the business itself. You know what I mean? Like whoever invests in a, in a particular, you know, investors want to have some sort of assurance that the money that they are putting in, whether it be through ICO or traditional VC models, have uh, is going to be protected once it's on chain, and at the moment there's there's no real good way of doing this risk analysis other than saying that everything that goes on the chain is risky. Um, this this particular these particular tools enable people who insure who invest to actually do the kind of um, you know actuary and, and and quant work that's necessary to determine the risk of uh, of a um, of of a business that runs its its entire model off of a smart contract, um, and yeah. this could open up whole new avenues of funding. It could enable greater uh, funding for particular projects through traditional models, um, and it can enable businesses to have that insurance to know that hey, yeah. oh, we just got a hundred eighty million dollar token hack. Um, no yeah. worries, our insurance covered it. <laughs> like. We had no insurance. We had no token hack to begin with. You know? You're already thinking like five steps ahead now. What's that? You're you're already thinking five steps ahead now. I think from very welcome to Colin. So, like we were <laughs> starting from the TCR. I think a, a very a great first use case for it would be to to add all kinds of verified libraries that are reusable. So. You have a library listed in the TCR. You know that at that address, this this contract can be trusted and is secure and safe. And then people would start hopefully reusing those instead of deploying like copies of the same contract all over and over again. 
so that could all, all, all be things that would naturally be built on top of that TCR, I think. Yeah. 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 Yeah, totally. And that's that's what I'm looking forward to, because we've got a lot of work to do in this industry. We do. Um, and, you know, it's not all about scaling. Um, you know, obviously, security is the fundamental one of the more fundamental problems we're dealing with immediately. Um, yeah. That's that's the 10 foot in front of your face issue. I would say that scaling is the, um, you know, 1000 1,000 feet out, and then, you know, we've got the issue of, you know, layer two and stuff like that. Like, I don't even know where they are. And, like, actually integration with enterprise is probably another mile out, um, you know, as far – but to have all of this work, um, you need to have the fundamental funding mechanisms uh, be able to be confident in the work that's being done. And the traditional funding – because we're still in a fiat world um, – and, you know, the traditional funding mechanisms are a little sketched about blockchain right now. Um, so I, I feel like, uh, you know, some of them, not all of them. There's certain ones like Poly Capital, which are all in. But, um, you know, it's, it's – um, or Polychain, sorry. Um, it's, it's, it's important that we give them confidence. It's important for us. It's important for the ecosystem. It's important for builders. And what you're doing is – just one of the best things you've done right now. You are in the right place at the right time. I think the, the people you're talking to are, you know, the right people to talk to. I, I love everything that the Mithril is doing, and I'm really looking forward to playing with the Mithril platform API. Now, I know we're running cool. late on the show a little bit, but I was thinking maybe you could talk a little bit about your token, um, oh, yes. <laughs> how that would work, and how, uh, and how licensing and, and the, the additional tools and features we'd unlock with your token, what those kind of are and, and where you plan on that going. Yes, so the idea is to have, to have a license token. So a while ago, I read an article by, by John Griffin, who is one of the initiators of ESC 948, the recurring subscription, subscription uh, model. And he was writing about non-fungible smart uh, non-fungible licenses. So basically you represent licenses as assets on the chain that you can just send around and they're exchangeable, which I found pretty cool. And so we started talking to him and we came up with the idea of doing a fungible license token and holding some amount of the token represents a license to access the API. So let's say, uh, the token probably going to be called Myth, even though there's already another token that's called Myth with an <laughs> I, which is pretty, pretty annoying. But uh, I think we're still going to get the trademark on that because Mythril was around earlier than the other project. So let's see. And I hope that will be okay. So assuming it's called Myth, um, we will have a license contract. So you will need to own Myth, and you will have to deposit some amount of that in the contract, and then it will be uh, your balance will be deduced based on how much you use the API, and you can pick between uh, between a daily model, monthly model, and uh, yearly model with different token prices. What these exact packages are, and whether there are uh, pro packages that have more features and stuff. We haven't completely figured it out yet, but we still have 
I think half a year time to do that because we want to to finish the product first and really have everything tested and working and possibly already have people building tools and people using them. And then we're going to do the token and we will not have an ICO, but instead we will sell them through a so-called market contract. And this contract uh, allows you to mint tokens for ETH and the ETH that are sent into the contract that stay there. So you can later sell back the tokens for ETH. And fantastic. Show me, price... don't tell me. You know, show me, don't tell me. You know, you're building it first. And then you, you put on your article, build, then hodl. Uh, build, then hodl. You know, that's, that's great. I love that that's, because a lot of people that's... are promising things and, and investments and ICOs have been basically off of nothing more than a white paper and a PowerPoint. Um, so, you know, I think, it's, I think it's great you build it first. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we really... We really want to token the, the planned token in a caref careful way, uh, so that it's really realistic, right? So because a lot of tokens have like a market cap of a hundred million dollars without a product, but we want to have a supply that kind of matches the user base that we are expecting and the price that they would probably pay for the API, and we think that at least in the beginning people would probably be willing to spend a dollar for using the API for a day, which is one metric we, we considered. And we're probably, we're hoping to get to maybe 10,000 users or so by 2020, and then a lot more uh, over the next five years. So the total supply is, is uh, tailored to that. And, the price is still variable. So depending on how, how many users there are, the price can get higher. But it's kept, I think, at 0 0.05 uh, ETH. So if it ever reaches that maximum price, because we have a huge user base, then it will basically be an ETH stable coin, so to say. <laughs> it will always be worth and then our, our model completely switches to a revenue-based model where people pay tokens and the tokens go back to tool developers and team. Uh, and the other important aspect is that uh, yeah, we, want to build, we want people to build Mithril tools. We, want, we don't want to build everything ourselves. And we will share revenues that come through the API with those tool builders. Plus, we will have like uh, bounty pools and community pools and a capacitor that people can vote on where funds should be allocated and a lot of like community stuff like that so that people really feel incentivized and involved in the project. Uh, yeah. So that's yeah, the idea. A lot of exciting things. Yeah. And, and I feel like we could probably go on for another half hour, but we are coming to a close. So are there any other questions that, um, that, uh, that maybe we should have asked, but, uh, but we didn't? Uh, no, I Anything think. Anything that you particularly are excited about in the space that maybe uh, you'd like to uh, name drop and mention? Well, I think that uh, most important to us right now is to build a community mm -hmm. and to have people experiment with the API and start building tools. And 
By doing that, obviously, you will also get tokens earlier, or you might get bounties, etc. So that's also an incentive to join. So uh, we have a Discord community, and you'll find the link to that on the website. So if you just ping us there, you we can brief you on what's going on and maybe see uh, if there's any possible contribution that you could do or uh, maybe even still add more team members to the core team. It's all still, it's all still pretty much open. So cool. the bigger the community gets, the better. Yeah, totally agree. This is a, this is a community effort the whole way. That's one of the things I like about Ethereum is how community driven it is and how it's attracting the best in the fields. And, uh, you know, I feel humbled yeah. to even be, you know, allowed to speak <laughs> in front of you guys. So thank you again, Bernard, for your work. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that was great. Thanks for coming on. I look forward to seeing you next week. Oh, yeah. Are you, are you all going to be in Berlin? Um, I will be. I'll be there for all, all of the festivities in Berlin awesome. Blockchain Week. Okay, cool. Then see you there.